A number of years ago, I was um, part of a staff team on a local church, um, when during the staff meeting, the senior pastor asked all the staff to answer this question, what is your biggest fear? What is your biggest fear? You've got a staff team of a reasonably large church, all going around, and to my surprise, and actually the surprise of everyone in the room, it seemed that the answer was almost unanimous as we went around the room. The biggest fear on the staff team of this thriving church was that we'd all be shown to be hypocrites. It was a fear of what others thought. See, every single one of us felt the difference between what people saw and thought of us and what we knew we were like. And it just came out that as we had this moment of of realness, of honesty, that it was one of the biggest fears that we all had. And what it shows us is that for almost everyone in that meeting, and my hunch is that almost everyone in this room, there's a difference between how we look on the outside and the reality on the inside, isn't there? We often have a face to the world that looks different from what we are really like. One of the highest values in our society today seems to be authenticity, to be who we really are. There's nothing that gets under our skin more than the hypocrite, right? Uh, People who say one thing but do another, like that dirty policeman, that dirty cop who enforces the law and tells people what to do but thinks they are above the law, speeds to get takeaway for dinner, yet books people on the way back because they were speeding. Or the politician who's here to serve the people but defrauds them by investing government funds into his businesses or his contracts or his company. You just get so frustrated. How can you do that? You're set apart to serve the people and you're just serving yourself. Christianity has this within it too. The pastor who preaches generosity yet stores up all sorts of riches for himself in his private jet or huge homes or things that just keep pouring on his or her greatness. It makes us sick, doesn't it? We get so angry with people that just say one thing and do something else. Authenticity is a huge value for us. And I want to put it to you this morning uh, that the reason that we see it as so important, the reason authenticity is so big for us and our society, is because our morals, our cultural norms have, to a limited extent, actually come out of Christianity. Some of the things that we do and think are part of that Christian background, that Christian heritage. And one of the things I really like about Jesus, I, I love this about him, is that he is authentic. He's kind of the model of authenticity, isn't he? What you see with Jesus is exactly what you get. Have a look at verse 37 in Luke 11. As Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in. And reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw this, he was amazed that he did not first perform the ritual washing before dinner. Now, here's this situation where Jesus has been um, kind of socializing with all sorts of people with prostitutes, with sinners, with tax collectors, the social outcasts of society. And sometimes we think that that's where we should spend all our time, but Jesus doesn't spend all his time there. He's happy to go and, and sit with these Pharisees, these kind of religious bigwigs. And he goes to dinner, but the thing that the Pharisees are frustrated at is that he hasn't washed his hands. You think if you had God the Son at your table, you'd be amazed. They're amazed, all right, but that he didn't follow the laws they had. See, these these ritual washings, that's not what you do with your kids before dinner. 
It's not kind of like ritually, go and wash your hands. You can't have rabbit poo on your hands and eat. It's not going to end well. You just need to go and do that. that. That's not what's going on here. It's not about germs and extra cleanliness and external cleanliness. It's a kind of religious act that the Jews had. Now, though it's described throughout the Old Testament, nowhere is it commanded. Nowhere does the Old Testament say you must wash your hands in this way. The Jews had a whole heap of laws, 613 laws from the Scriptures. This wasn't one of them. It was an extra one that they kind of tapped on to make it, this is what you've got to do to be religious, part of the club, to be, to be seen and to be right in this religious sect. And the Pharisees, they, they love to clarify exactly what they have to do and don't do. I think they're just like me. Just like us as humans. We, we want to know exactly where is the line. If you're dating someone, how far can I go? I just want to know exactly where it is so that it's not too far and I can push it as much as I can. Or what, what about uh, tax evasion? Where is the line between tax evasion and where I'm just being a, a citizen who's paying my taxes? How far can I go with a person in the office just chatting? When does it cross a line? We have all these things. Well, what is generous? And we kind of make up rules. If we can make rules for it, then it's just really easy to obey. We can just go, right, there's the line. I stop there. I'll go everything up until that line, but never cross it. And that way I'll look right. I'll be right. I'll be happy with myself. The Scriptures don't let us do that. The Scriptures push us to the heart, to what we are actually like and what our God is like and to be like Him. The Pharisees... They love to make clear what to do. In fact, they make it so clear, it's clearer than the Scriptures. That's what they do. We say, this is exactly what God meant, and they kind of add these extra rules and these ways to live so that they can look right and be right and be happy in themselves, saying, yes, I observe this, everything's fine here. And I think that's one of the things that's actually attractive about religion. People love knowing that they can go and, and say, five Hail Marys, and they think that because they've done that, their sins are wiped away, and there are certain ritual things that we do in all sorts of different religious backgrounds. Whether that be to go to an idol and bow down to it, then we know, oh, we can pray to this idol and maybe it will help us. Or whether we go, if we come to church, then it's a ritual thing that we do and God will be happy with us. He looked down on us because we went to church so long and had to listen to an Australian for all that time. You know, God must be proud of us. That's what religion does. It pushes us to love the external, the laws, the rules, the regulations. It gives us kind of like a club membership code, a secret handshake that if you know it, you're sweet. But authentic Jesus, as he walks into this Pharisee's house, smells the rat in religion. He walks in and goes, there's something not right here. Now, unlike us, he sees people's hearts and minds and knows what's going on, but he actually knows what the issue is. This might come as a shock to you. Jesus hates religion. He hates it. He hates this religiosity. Listen to the way he responds here in verse 39. But the Lord said to this Pharisee, Now you Pharisees, remember he's just invited him to dinner. Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Fools! Didn't he who make the outside make the inside too? But give from within to the poor and then everything is clean for you. Imagine having Jesus around for dinner. Right? This is the thing with authenticity. Sometimes it's a little bit awkward, isn't it? When someone really says what they think, it can be in a loving way, but sometimes it, it hurts. Sometimes we don't like the truth. That's why we just, we're polite and we just smile and say, oh, that's nice, and we move on. But not with Jesus. He doesn't pull any punches. 
And it's worth stopping for a moment that we might adjust our view of Jesus. When I was growing up, uh, I remember my, my parents teaching me to, to pray. It was a good prayer, helpful prayer. But this prayer that I would often say each night as I went to bed, I don't know if you've done it or had it, but this prayer that went, uh, Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Help me sleep throughout the night and wake me with the morning light. I don't know if some people have done similar things or it's just me as the weirdo, but that, that, that's one of the things that I was taught. And there was this picture of Jesus that I had as I was kind of understanding him more and more that was a picture of his meekness and his mildness, sitting down with a little lamb and patting it, kind of like, how you going, Sean? And just, just sitting there and him walking as a shepherd and, and just calling the sheep as the hills were alive with the sound of music. It was kind of that picture in my head of what Jesus was like that he would come as my saviour, as this soft and cuddly Santa Claus type figure, that we could come to him with anything, which we can, and there is a meekness and a mildness about him, but we could just come to him and and kind of sit on his proverbial lap and squish into his soft, cuddly gut and kind of say, oh, Jesus, please, this Christmas, please give me this, please save me from that. It was this picture of Jesus who is really just this fluffy Santa Claus. You can ask whatever you want and he'll give you things. But Jesus is far too loving to give us what we want. He is far too loving to give us what we want. Instead, he tells us what we need to hear. Don't let your picture of Jesus be all soft and fluffy and cuddly. Let him be the king, the ruler of the universe, the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given, the one who has command over our lives. Listen to Him. When you invite Jesus to the table of your life, He doesn't come quietly and sit at the end and just kind of fit in with the chit-chat over dinner. He's not kind of one of those polite and humorous guests that you just have along and they know what to say and we can laugh and we go home and at the end of the day of our time with Jesus, oh, isn't that nice? He's, he's a great optional extra to life. He made it just that much better. He comes to the table and speaks the truth, the truth about himself and the truth about us. He's come to show he is king. He doesn't sit at some side seat at the table. He walks into this Pharisee's home. He walks into the home of our lives today and sits at the head of the table and says, what are you really like? What is really going on for you? Do you see what you're like? Do you see who I am? He turns the order of the world as we know it on its head. You can't see Jesus as a cuddly Santa Claus type figure. He's the king. And he loves us too much to go along with our little games, to pretend that everything's okay, to play all nice and politically correct. There's an issue in this passage today that is so significant that if we don't deal with it, it will eat us up and spit us out. It will derail us from eternity and make our lives empty and void. The issue is this, being happy with external appearances rather than our inward reality. Being happy with external experiences rather than dealing with our inward reality. Friends, that's the problem of religion. It's the problem of religion. And Jesus points out ever so clearly in this next section here, four aspects of this religious hypocrisy for this Pharisee. The first one, and I'll go through them pretty quickly, is that 
for this Pharisee, it's all about external appearances rather than the inward reality. Look at verse 39. Now, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and evil. Notice how he switches the metaphor there. You know, you clean the outside of the cup and dish and you expect him to go, but you don't clean the inside. But he switches it to say, you are full of greed and evil and you don't worry about that at all. He's talking about this Pharisee who cares about what others think, who cares about what he looks like and how he acts and how he dresses and what people think of him as long as the world around looks to this man and says, yes, you're a religious man, you're a great follower, then he's happy with life. But on the inside, Jesus sees through the facade. It's full of greed and evil, caring only about himself. They don't care what's going on. They just want to be seen to be right. Unfortunately, that reminds me of how I can be like sometimes. And my hunch is you too. The second thing that's going on with this problem of religion is external observance rather than living out God's love and justice. Not only do they care about what they look like on the outside, it's what they do on the outside. Look at verse 42. You give a tenth of mint and rue and every kind of herb and you bypass the justice and love for God. These things you should have done without neglecting the other. They had this kind of giving away, this tithing idea that we give away 10% of everything. And these Pharisees, they knew that we had to give 10% away. So that's what they were doing. They were doing 10% of everything. They went to their herb garden. You know, some basil grew up. And they're like, oh, there's a 10% line. You kind of, they probably even count the number of leaves on the basil plant and kind of count them. Like, 10%, all right, there we go. I'll put that aside and walk through the house. And, you know, they might have like a, a tomato bush and they take 10% of the, everything they had, every little thing that produced some sort of fruit or gain, they'd give 10% on the dot. You can guarantee it. They were squeaky clean in their observance. But they never got to the heart of it. They were never actually generous. God had set up giving out 10% to thank Him so that people would remember that everything that we have comes from God. It wasn't some way to make us right before God. It was a way to remember that God gave us everything. It was them giving away what God had given to them. It was only holding on to some of it. And rather than them being generous and overflowing with generosity, they didn't care about the poor. They didn't care about using the, the money, the time, the resources that they'd been given to look, for, look after those around them, to care for those around them. They're like, we just give our 10% and move on. It can be easy, can't it? To draw a line in the sand, to work out what generous is in our giving, in our time, and say, that's it, I've done my time. I've done my thing. I've spent my years. I used to be committed. I've done my time in that place. Or to think through, you know, I've given away my money. I give away 10%. Rather than think through, wow, look at what God has given me. Look at how I might use the funds He's given me to steward. Because remember, everything we have is His. The funds that He's given me to steward, the life that He's given me to steward, how can I use that for His glory? To be generous to those around us, to be generous in the proclamation of the news of Jesus. These verses sting because they hit us in areas that we love to hold on to. The third area was their external position. These guys loved the box seats. That's what they loved. They loved people around them looking to them and saying, wow, you're brilliant. 
Look at verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees! You love the front seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now, obviously, as a church, right, we don't have that problem here. Right? No one ever sits in the front row. Right? I don't know. Maybe we need to reverse it. You want to get here early so you can sit up the back and out of the way. Or uh, The point is, they're coming along to be seen by others. Do you see me? I'm at church. Yep, I was there. I came along. They, they come along so that people might see that they're, they're observing this ritual and doing this thing. And make sure you get to connect group every week so everyone sees you. It's the same heart, isn't it? We do all sorts of things so that others might have a perception of us. And really deep down, we, we just care about our opinion. Now, I'm not saying, right, so don't come, let's, you know, let's be authentic. I don't feel like going to church today, so stuff it, I'm not. I don't feel like reading the Bible, I'm just going to be authentic today. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm not going to observe anything because I'm just going to be real. I'm a sinner, I'm just going to leave it all. No, the point is that we need to be real with who our God is and our need to serve Him, the freedom we have to serve Him. And do that honestly, openly, not to be seen by others. Only we could let go of what others think of us and care more about what God thinks of us. He sees our hearts. And number four, I think, is the best image of them all. The problem with this religion is that its core is death. Its core is death. On the surface, it looks great. It looks like you're ticking all these boxes, coming along, doing these things, squeaky clean on the outside. That person, man, they look great. They, they come to church, they read the Bible, they do things up the front. Uh, people, and they're a really good Christian. But inside, if they're not actually letting Jesus mold and shape their life and trusting in Him, it is death. It is death. Because religion only cares about our outward appearance and not our heart. Good verse 44. Woe to you! You are like unmarked graves. The people who walk over them don't know it. In other words, people are going past looking like your life, Pharisee, is just this nice, lush, green piece of grass in an open field that looks brilliant. Like, what a great piece of grass. But they don't know that really underneath is death. It's an unmarked grave. Beneath the surface lies death in life. (laughs) Following Jesus isn't about our outward appearance or minuscule observation. It's, It's not about what I can do. Religion says, I can be good enough for God. Like I know, not totally, Jesus had to die for me, but you know what? I can, I can do this thing. I can stick at it. I can be a good Christian person. I can be a good moral citizen. I'll put on a good front. I'll, I'll, I'll even just try and do my best. I'll tick the boxes. I'll look the part. But for religion, it never touches the heart. We're never actually broken enough to say, I can't do, I can't do a thing. Friends, religion like this will kill us. If your faith, if your trust in Jesus is really just living out as a moral person, a good person, without God's Spirit in us, without His Word dwelling in us to let us see the joy of what it is to cast our life on Him and know that He has died in our place and forgiven us, if 
if it's just about outward observance, about looking right to those around us, it just leads to death. We're kidding ourselves. The great freedom of Christianity is knowing that I don't deserve eternal life. It's being able to say that I'm a sinner, I I fail, I'm broken, I haven't got life together, not even a bit. I do dumb things, I fall down, I need help, I need a saviour, I need people to walk alongside me because without them I'm like a sheep that just wanders astray right into the mouths of wolves. Friends, there are no heroes in Christianity other than Christ. There are no heroes in Christianity other than Christ. Everyone else is a broken sinner. Is broken at the foot of the cross, desperate for their need of salvation in Jesus. There are not these great ones. There's Jesus and then there's everyone else. And the message for us today is, stop being hypocrites. The message for me is, Rowan, stop thinking you can portray a life that is better than it actually is. Stop going on to connect group, acting like we don't sin, sitting around and saying, oh yeah, I've got a few struggles this week and you know, I'm not saying we make up stuff, but so often we hear what we share and we come together and what do we say? Oh, I'd love you to help me to stop speeding a bit. You know, the socially acceptable sins, that's what we talk about. We talk about these things that are just, yeah, they're real and speeding is wrong, yes. Where does pride come into it? What do we talk about our desires where we, we really want to see others praise us? We don't speak of it because, well, we, we, we care too much about what others think. One of Satan's biggest victories is to make us think that we can't or shouldn't tell anyone else about our sin. At that moment, he's kind of won. He, he keeps it to us and it boils and gets bigger and, we, and either pushes us down to despair and, and then we just give up. Or we go, no, I'll get on top of it, but we never do. And the sin masters us. Whether it be thought or word or deed or maybe even things that we, we should have done but haven't done, we need to be honest with ourselves, with others. Now, I'm not saying we walk around with verbal diarrhea, kind of speaking to everyone, do you know what I thought this week? And we kind of just say to everyone all these things that we've done. I'm not saying that we do that everywhere, but surely there's got to be someone, hasn't there? people that you're honest and authentic and real with as you share the life. We're all sinners. There's no one in this room that can say, yeah, I've got it all sorted. Come follow me. Well, there is, and his name is Jesus, and he's present by his word and his spirit. But he's it. He's the only hero in Christianity. A few years ago, through a series of really random events, I found myself in the position of thinking, oh, I wonder what it would be like to be married to someone else. Now, I've got Sarah's permission uh, to say this. Uh, and there's this part of me, I was thinking, you know, it wasn't like anything vicious. There was nothing wrong with my marriage or with Sarah. I, I love Sarah. It was great. Our marriage was fantastic. But I just found this moment, like, oh, I wonder what it would be like to be married to someone else. And then it was just this one girl that kind of popped into my head. And it was like, for a month, I just could not get her out. I'm like, what is going on here? It's kind of, it was awkward. It was like, why am I thinking this stuff? What is going on? There's part of me that didn't want it to happen, or anything to even think about this. Nothing happened at all, but it was just my head was thinking. But then there's part of you that's like, oh, I wonder what it would be like. What if? It was embarrassing. 
the last thing I wanted to do was to tell someone. Like that sort of stuff, you're like, shut up, just keep it in your head. Don't say anything. But as soon as you do that, it starts to eat you out and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Temptation for me is to say, I can deal with this. I can just put it out of my head and move on. I love my wife. She's brilliant. But here's the thing. I could not trust myself to keep it to myself. If I did that, it would only grow and conquer me. But if I didn't tell someone, I'd just be having myself on. I, I, I could just be saying, oh, I'll, 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 I'll get rid of this. I couldn't do it. As soon as I worked out, it was a thing. As soon as I worked out, there was something going on here in my head. I went straight to my boss, who's a pastor. And I told him, this is what's going on for me. I said, as embarrassing as it was, and crazy as it was, I said, can you please watch me? Can you ask me how I'm going here? Do I make sure I put my wife first in this way? Look out for any time I spend with this girl. I named her. I talked to who she was, so he knew. I went home, and as hard as it was, I told Sarah, which is hard for her, but she trusted me that I was honest and open. Um, and then I told Sarah that I told my boss and that I was going to chat to some other friends to keep me accountable of just how I was going in that. I used to meet up with um, three other friends who were pastors. Uh, we'd meet together um, every, every, every so often in a month, um, at least monthly. And we'd ask each other these same questions, the three Gs we used to call them. Uh, how are you going with putting Jesus first in the areas of girls, grog and greed? So girls, alcohol and um, money, the three Gs. And we'd ask one another, is there anyone in your life? It was, a, it was a common question we had for each other that you're thinking about in any way, shape or form who is not your wife. And I remember the guys going around and me going, actually, there is. And just how I felt at that moment. I'll tell you how I felt. Embarrassed, but free. Because it wasn't up to me. I could then share it with others who were then like, yeah, welcome to being a sinner as well. And who could pray for me and, and ask me how I'm going in those areas. Now, it went away pretty quickly after that. But imagine if I didn't say anything. If I tried to deal with it on my own. Friends, we need to be honest. We are all sinners. Satan loves us to keep it to ourselves, to think we can just hide behind the facade, to put on a front to others. Don't be like an unmarked grave, all green and flourishing on the outside, but dead underneath. I don't know where we get the idea that we're supposed to be great and perfect people. We put ourselves in that position all the time. We think that we must be the best Christians or the best person or the most moral, and we, we think that we've got to have it all together, and it's a massive kind of failure when we don't. Well, it is a failure to reject God but we are sinners. And if, if you look through the pages of the Bible, like it's a big book, right? You've only got to get to chapter three and it all goes pear-shaped. 400 words in and there's sin. There's rejection from God. There's people, the first man, Adam and Eve, who reject God. Not long after that, Moses kills a guy, God's kind of prophet of the Old Testament. He, he kills this guy. Jesus is then betrayed by one of his own people. Every single one of his closest followers and disciples abandon him. Peter publicly three times denies Jesus, saying, I don't know him, I have nothing to do with him. The essence of the Christian gospel is not that we are good. It's that we are not good. But Jesus loves us anyway. 
That's what we call the gift of grace. It's the gift of grace, the gift of God's love for us, even when we don't deserve it. It's trusting that it's been done in Jesus. And I say it's, it's where true worship of Jesus starts, not in religion, not in religious acts. Maybe the reason why so many of us struggle to worship and we're not able to walk in the joy of our salvation in Christ is because we haven't understood that it depends on Him and not us. We're still trying to cling on to what people think on the outside. It's trying to hold on to our kind of persona that we put on to others rather than taking Him seriously. And we get religion instead of salvation, of grace, of the gospel. And religion is this soul-crushing, devastating thing that dries up our souls and says, you need to accomplish the impossible. But we can't. And we shouldn't. Because the impossible has already been given to us. Why do we do this? Next week, as we look at Luke 12, we're going to see that there are no secrets in life. Jesus knows all. He knows everything that's going on in your head right now. The sins you're thinking through, the, the sins you've done, the, the, the joys you have, everything. It's open book to Him. We can't hide it from Him. He knows it all. And yet He still goes to the cross and dies in our place. He still takes the penalty that we deserve, knowing that we're rebellious sinners. Just think about for a moment how much energy you burn, how much kind of vitality you lose when the goal of your life is to protect what others think of you. When you put all this energy and effort into being who you aren't really, it kind of removes your ability to receive love from others. As they love you, your head goes, you know what? They don't really love you. They love the, the, the you you're putting on to everyone else. If they really knew what you're like, then they wouldn't love you. It removes your ability for intimacy with anyone. As you, as you try to get to know people and as you, you put on this front of what you're like, it's just fake. And well, do they really like me for who I am? Am I really this person? There's just all these doubts that go underneath. It removes your ability to worship God freely because you're always trying to hide who you really are. I don't want him to see this thing. I want to hold this thing off. I can do it. It's all right. I'm okay. And it kills us. It kills us. Because in the end, we're depending on who we are rather than what Jesus has done. We're depending on our efforts, not His. In Psalm 51, David describes God and his view of us as broken people. He says this, God will not despise a broken and humbled heart. God will not despise a broken and humbled heart. You know what I think? I keep thinking, God will not despise a heart that tries really hard to do everything that He wants me to do and wants to serve Him in every way, then He'll be happy with me. I can't show God this. I can't be that. Come as you are is the message of the gospel. And we won't stay as we are, but come as you are. God will not despise a broken and humbled heart. Why? Because that's the true heart. That's the heart that knows what we're like. So you're someone who struggles to put Jesus first? Welcome. Welcome. We're all in that case. You're someone who is here and you feel like there are things in your life that you regret? Welcome. Welcome. 
There are things in your life that you're doing now that God is not proud of. It's exactly right. That is us. Christians are a group of people who've seen who Jesus is. We've heard his call on who we are, that we are broken and that we need his forgiveness. And through nothing that we have done, even the gift of faith itself is something that God gives us. He draws us to trust his son. The difference between religion and the gospel is that religion says, hide it at all costs. But the gospel says, lay it out, for Jesus paid it all. Hide it at all costs. Versus lay it out, for Jesus has paid it all. And so we call the gift of God's grace, the gift of God in Jesus. Well, how do we respond to this gift? How do we respond? Well, in this section, Jesus isn't finished yet. And neither is Luke. Jesus then turns to the experts in the law who are at the table, if that wasn't enough. And listen to what happens here, uh, verse 45. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us too. (laughs) And you just wait for the moment. I don't know how long Jesus' breath was at this point. But he would have done exactly the same with you and me, wouldn't he? Jesus, you're calling me a Christian. You're saying that I'm hypocritical too. Why are you saying that I'm on your side? Woe also to you experts in the law. You load people with burdens that are hard to carry, yet you yourselves don't touch these burdens with even one of your fingers. Woe to you. You can feel at this point that Jesus just keeps swinging like he's had a bad day. He's gone to dinner and he's like, right, I'm going to take all you guys out. But no, he's showing here in this section the answer to the whole problem. The experts in the law, see, they, they, were, they were kind of these people that cherished what had happened in the Old Testament. And they, they loved the prophets or they built monuments to the prophets. It was these big things that they would do and then people would be excited about that. Now, the prophets were the mouthpieces of God. They were the people who spoke throughout the Old Testament explaining what God was saying to them. Now, the thing is, their fathers killed the prophets. They didn't listen to them. They rejected what God had said through these mouthpieces of God. And now their sons, these experts in the law, say, you know what? We're going to build monuments to the great prophets who our fathers rejected and wanted nothing to do with. Why did they do that? Because they were repenting and they wanted to follow what the prophets said? No, because they wanted to say, yes, we, we love the prophets. We're with them. We like, we like prophets, especially when they're dumb statues. That's when we love them, when we can go, yes, you're great over here. You don't have any impact on my life. I don't have to listen to you. I can make up my own rules and laws and, and put these burdens on others and look great myself. That's when you're happy with yourself. It's just another example of paying lip service to the things of God. Look at verse 49. Because of this, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they will kill and persecute, so that this generation may be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. You kind of go, why is Jesus being so harsh on these guys if their fathers killed them? Why is it, why is it this generation? Why are they something special rather than generations that had gone on before and that had done these things and rejected the messengers of God? Why this generation? It's because they were sitting face to face with the greatest prophet of all. 
and their hearts and minds were saying, how do we shut him up? Friends, we are sitting today face to face with God the Son. Jesus has come through his word by his spirit and is saying to you and to me, will you live with me as your king rather than trying to be perfect yourself? Will you take me at my word? Take me seriously. Stop mucking around. Will you let me rule your life? For I am king. The greatest messenger was here to that generation and they had the opportunity to repent, to turn and go, we've been wrong. We are unmarked graves. We are heaping all this stuff on. We're just concerned about the external, not the internal. Save us. Jesus, how might we find life and forgiveness? But they refuse to listen to God. Would prefer to set their own rules, make up their own boundaries, to keep looking schmick on the outside, but hollow in the middle. And I get it. I'd love to make up my own rules. This is what Christianity would be like. You know, if I were God, I'd, I'd kind of do it this way. And I think, you know, if God just had a chat with me first, maybe we could make his, his world a little bit better. We could do things like the way I'd like to do it. It'd just be so much easier and, you know... He and He alone is God. We need to listen to Him. And remember, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He doesn't trust us to define what good is. For we put on all these external things that we can't keep. How many of us have this view in our head of what it would be like to be just a moral person? I think you're right, we have this view, yet my bet is none of us keep it. We fail at our own level of morality, let alone God's. And yet, in Jesus, we have a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. He says, come to me, all you broken-hearted people, and I will give you rest. Forgiveness has been offered through nothing we have done, but all through what Jesus has done. These experts had the chance to confess their hypocrisy. And return to the one who will die for them. But look what happens. Verse 53. When he left there, the scribes and the Pharisees begin to oppose him fiercely, to cross-examine him about many things. They were lying in wait for him to trap him in something he said. Hostility towards God's way is often a product of, reducing, of rejecting his messengers. Let me say it again. Hostility towards God's way is often a product of rejecting God's messengers. Rather than turning to Jesus, their rejections intensified. They don't reform, but commit themselves to silencing Jesus. And I doubt you or I would go, yes, I want to put him on a cross and kill him. But we keep our Bibles shut. We keep areas of our lives cordoned off from our God. Don't go there. Don't talk about that. I'll deal with that one day. There are parts that we, we kind of know deep down that we should just get over, but we don't. We don't let God speak to us. We don't share them with others because we know what they'll say. They'll say, look, can I, can I pray for you to keep growing in this area? Because we want to say, no, don't do that. I like it. Rather than turning to Jesus, they silence him. They shut him out. We need to hear the warning today. Don't make the same mistake. Don't make the same mistake. Join me in confessing to our God that 
our lives are really like grassy graves at points. There are areas that need to be cast on the resurrecting grace of God. We join with me and come today for the first time or the 500th time back to our Saviour and see what He has done. Will you let Him sit at the head of your table? Will you not silence Him anymore, but put Him in that position of King and Ruler? For there's not one area of our lives that doesn't need His resurrecting grace. Will you be honest and open? Determine to be authentic with at least a couple of people around you. Tell them the things that you're struggling with. Feel that the freedom come from knowing that someone else knows and they can pray for you. Stop pretending that we've got it all together. Tell someone and come to Jesus. Cling to Him warts and all. Perfect Savior, evil, greedy, wrong-hearted sinner, yet washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why we're so excited about Jesus. This is what He has done for us. He's taken broken, ugly, sinful people who've rejected God and wanted nothing to do with Him, and He's washed us whiter than snow. Friends, won't you recognize the great freedom we have when we trust in Jesus? Death no longer has its hold on us. It can do nothing. It can't take us down because in Jesus, the price has been paid. The life Jesus calls us to live is inside out, not outside in. Showing the world around us what we are like. It's upside down. It's serving from the bottom to others. Putting yourself at the feet of the cross, at the feet of others as we serve them, recognizing that it's only by the grace of God that we are. And it flows from the generosity of God's grace to us. Inside out, upside down overflowing with generosity because the God of the universe has called us sinners His children. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank You this day for the amazing news of Jesus' death in our place. We want to thank You that Jesus loves us enough to call us out for what we are. People who have not treated You as we ought. People who deserve judgment, separation from your goodness, death. Lord, as we reflect on what we are like and the areas we like to keep off bounds, we are so thankful that Jesus has paid the price for it all. So Lord, would you give every person in this room the courage and boldness to trust you? Myself and every, every person here, Lord, help us to find people today, this day, this week, that we can share our struggles with, that can be praying for us, that we would be a church that doesn't try to put on this facade that we've got it all together, but is a church that points to how Jesus has it all together. Father God, we pray that you would take our lives and let them be consecrated for you. And that that would look like ugly sinners confessing our sin and praising a God in whom we can rejoice in every sin has been paid for and life is given to those who trust in your son. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust you. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Friends, when you stand before your maker, full of wonder, full of fear,
Behold his power and glory, yet with confidence draw near to the one who bent before us and gave his life at the cross. Let's stand and remind each other that we have great reasons to rejoice.